Well, happy Mother's Day to you. You can go ahead and be seated. Welcome to Crossroads Church. What a uh, great way to start off our uh, day together by participating in baptism of Carol, uh, a mom being baptized on this Mother's Day. Man, what an amazing, amazing uh, experience that we get to participate in as believers, that here at Crossroads, we believe that when it comes to baptism, it is one of the most significant things that you can do in your faith journey. Not only is it a public profession of our faith, but it is this moment in our lives where we are, we are brought into union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, and that's signified for us in, in really the dipping of water here. And so if you are someone who is, whether you've been a longtime part of the faith or you are brand new to the faith, if you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you uh, to get baptized. We try to make the process here at Crossroads as easy as we can. Um, and if you are interested in walking through that, we have our text line, which you saw earlier today, 720. 5131933 and you can just text the word next to that line and we will help you walk through the process of baptism if you're interested in going there with us all right well with that said I do want to welcome those of you joining us online and here at Thornton if you're new my name is Matt and today we are uh, in week two of a series that we're calling generation gap where we are looking at what does it mean for the generations to come together I don't think you need me to stand up and tell you that when it comes to our culture and society, particularly around the generations, that there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of posturing, not enough listening going on. And so over the course of these four weeks, as we're walking through this series together, we're looking at what does it mean to be a church that brings the generations together rather than pulling them apart, particularly as a church that has a vision to be a multi-generational church. And so last week, if you were here with us, we began the series by acknowledging that when it comes to the generation gap, there is actually this divide that has become quite toxic in our culture. And as we looked at that, we decided or saw that really when it comes to our role as believers, as followers of Jesus, when it comes to our role, when it comes to this uh, generational conversation, is not to contribute to the toxic divide that is happening in our culture, but rather to be the means of restoration in it. That when it comes to our role as a church and this generation gap and divide, that we're not just to contribute to the toxicity of it. Nor are we to deny that differences exist in the generations, because they actually do. That biblically speaking, our role when it comes to the generation gap is to bring restoration by realizing that the generations are good, that God has created them, and in the creation that we are actually to leverage the best of the generations for the betterment of this world, to bring flourishing into this world. And so that was last week, and if you missed that, you can check it out on our archives, you can go to YouTube and check all that out. This week, we're actually going to talk about what it looks like to live forever. Our world is absolutely fascinated with living forever. Living forever, cheating death has become big business. It is uh, capturing national headlines that recently the Smithsonian uh, Magazine wrote a pretty extensive news article piece on the Alcor Life um, Expectancy Foundation, where to date about 2,000 people are members of this foundation, and about 10% of those have been um, have had their heads and their bodies Cairo preserved in hopes of one day being revived later. The foundation CEO said this. He said. We're saying, instead of just disposing of the patient, that's what death is to them, give them to us. 
We're going to stabilize them, stop them getting worse, and hold them for as long as it takes for technology to catch up and allow them to come back to life and continue living. There is no if in this statement, there is just when, and basically what Alcor is saying is, hey, come to us and you can live forever. And yet despite Alcor's best efforts and the billions of dollars that are being thrown into this industry, as the onion puts it, the world death rate, is holding steady at 100%. Our world is fascinated with living forever, and yet what people miss as really the key to living forever begins not with denying or even defeating death, but rather by accepting it. In our acceptance of mortality, we realize that God has in fact designed us to live on in this world forever, maybe just not the way that we think of it. So that's what I want to explore with you today. And so we're going to do that by looking at an old king in Israel's history, in the Hebrews' history. His name is Hezekiah, and we find his story in 2 Kings chapter 18. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. He's one of the greatest kings of Judah that has ever been known, and King Ahaz uh, in his, became king at 25 years old, and his life was truly remarkable. He was a faithful man of God who for 29 years ruled Judah. He accomplished so many things in his life. In fact, his life was like stunning. If just half of what was said about Hezekiah could be true of any number of us, any one of us, then we would look back on our lives and truly look at our lives as something special, as something unique. That Hezekiah's 29-year run as king began when he was 25 years old. He was a young man with some chutzpah. At 25, he became king when his dad, King Ahaz, passed away, which was no small feat that Hezekiah became king because Ahaz killed all his other kids in pagan worship. That when it came to King Ahaz, he was an evil, evil dude. Not only did he sacrifice his own kids, but he desecrated the temple of God. He brought in idolatry uh, into into the kingdom of Judah and particularly into Jerusalem. And so Ahaz is this evil, evil dude. And as he passes, Hezekiah takes on the reign of Judah. And almost immediately, he begins to tear down all the evil that his dad did. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, it says this, that Hezekiah, he removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah. He broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Pause right there. This whole story about Moses and the bronze serpent, we find that in Numbers 21, all right? It's kind of a really interesting story of salvation. The people of Israel, they're struggling, they're sick. God tells Moses to take a snake, put it around a pole, hold it up. It turns to bronze. The people look at it and they are healed. What we find out in the New Testament is this story about Moses and this bronze serpent is actually a foreshadow of Jesus. Today in our culture, it's the sign of medicine. You know, the snake on the staff, it all comes out of Numbers 21. Well, apparently in Israel, people started to worship this, and King Ahaz encouraged the worship of this bronze pole serpent thing, and and the people of Israel just gave themselves over to it. Hezekiah shows up, and he just starts bashing things into pieces. Verse 5, he trusted, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He is the best king of Judah ever, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. 
And so we have this, out of this evil, evil dude, King Ahaz, comes this faithful man, Hezekiah, and as soon as he becomes king, he boldly starts just knocking down all of idol worship in Israel, where within just a couple of months, the idol worship, the Asherah, the pillars, the uh, desecration of the temple, all of that is moved out, and idol worship is completely out of Judah. But not only does Hezekiah get rid of idolatry, he actually begins to bring the Hebrew people into the worship of their God, Yahweh. That he unifies the people around worship, none like they had seen in decades, if ever, in their worship to God. That he reopens the temple, and in reopening the temple, he makes the temple the center of all of life there in Jerusalem. He reminds people of the Old Testament law and uh, that they had long since forgotten. And in all of this, there's like this old school revival that happens. Spiritual reformation happens in Judah's early days as king. And he is this man of deep faith and deep conviction. During Hezekiah's reign... Judah was sandwiched between two superpowers. On the south side was Egypt, on the north side was Assyria. And about 10 years or so into Hezekiah's reign, Assyria and their king, Sennacherib, decided that this kingdom of Assyria needed to be expanded, and so expand they did. And Assyria became really the dominant superpower of this time as they laid waste literally to every country, every nation north of Judah. Eventually, Sennacherib ends up in Jerusalem and he comes knocking on Hezekiah's door and he basically says to Hezekiah, look, I want you to pay taxes or you're going to die. Hezekiah tells Sennacherib, you can go pound sand for all I care. And obviously, that escalated the situation. And so, Sennacherib, the great king of Assyria, declares war on Israel. And the Assyrians, as they mobilize, anybody who's paying attention knows what's about to happen, that Assyria is going to destroy Judah. Judah just does not have the capacity to hold back the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians start to surround the city of Jerusalem. They start trash-talking the Hebrew people. They start trash talking Yahweh. And in that moment, Hezekiah, as all of Assyria is mocking him to get him to surrender, he tears his clothes, he drops to his knees, and he begins to pray this prayer to God. He says this, incline your heart, O Lord. Hear me, open your eyes, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations everywhere in their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please. Save us from his hands, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. God can do a lot with a man who is completely dependent upon him. Hezekiah tears his clothes, he begins to pray, God hears his prayer, and through the prophet Isaiah, responds to Hezekiah by saying, not even an arrow will enter into the city of Jerusalem. And not even an arrow does, because on that night, God does the miraculous. And as the Assyrians are surrounding the city, preparing for battle the next day, verse 35, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, there were these dead bodies everywhere. Then Sennacherib, the great king of Assyria, departed and he went home and he lived out 
his days in Nineveh, but not very many days because when he got home, history would tell us that his boys were waiting to assassinate him because of the failure of this war. That in this moment, as the world power is pounding on the door of Hezekiah, his faith does not even flinch. In the third chapter, that's chronicled for us in Hezekiah's life in 2 Kings chapter 20, we're told that Hezekiah's faith, or his, not his faith, his health begins to betray him. That he falls ill and the disease that, that he has is absolutely going to take him out. It's going to kill him. In fact, Isaiah shows back up on the king's doorstep and he comes with a message from God and the message from God is the message that none of us want to hear when Isaiah looks at Hezekiah and says, set your house in order for you're going to die. Man, you're not going to make it. You're, you're not going to recover from this. In that moment, Hezekiah turns his face to the wall. He begins to pray to the Lord, saying to him, Now, O Lord, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your side. And Hezekiah, he wept bitterly. God can do a lot with a man who's completely dependent upon him. That as Hezekiah prayed, God saw his tears. God listened and God answered his prayer and granted to Hezekiah 15 more years of life. When Hezekiah's life hung in the balance, he did what he had always done. He went to God. I'm telling you, the story of Hezekiah is a story that is stunning. He is a remarkable man of faith. And as the story of his miraculous recovery begins to spread throughout the known world, the prince of Babylon gets word of it. Babylon is now the rising uh, empire, the rising superpower of the day. And the prince of Babylon decides that he's going to send out an envoy of well wishes and gifts to Hezekiah. And as the envoy comes into the city, Hezekiah, whether a little bit flattered, maybe full of pride, maybe just looking for a political alliance, he welcomes this envoy into the city walls of Jerusalem. And not only does he receive them and their well wishes, but he begins to give them a tour of the kingdom. And in doing so, he shows the Babylonians all of the silver, the gold, the precious oils, the armory, the might of the army of Judah. He shows them all of the secrets of the kingdom. And as he's showing all of this in this moment, this foolish decision, as he's doing all of this, Isaiah the prophet gets word. He runs to the king. He finds Hezekiah sitting by himself and he looks at him and he says, King, <laughs> who was here? He says, The Babylonians said, why did they come? To bring me well wishes. They heard of my recovery. What did you do? I showed them everything. I imagine this moment, Hezekiah begins to hang his head as his heart begins to pound as he looks at his king and says, king, what have you done? I mean, do you even realize, do you even realize what you've done in this moment? that Babylon doesn't care a bit about you. You showed them everything. You exposed the secrets. In fact, the Bible tells us that there was nothing in the house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. King, you've shown them everything. Don't you know that this decision is going to impact your kids and your grandkids? It'll affect your people. Second Kings chapter 20, verse 17. Behold, the days are coming for you. When all that is in your house 
and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Man, they are going to wipe you out because of what you've done. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own kids, your sons, who will come from you, whom, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I mean, come on. Knowing everything that you know about this king that we just learned, what would you expect a man, a faithful man of God to do in this moment? What would you expect this king to do in this moment? Like, like would he get to his knees and begin to pray like, like he did, you know, depending upon God, like he did in his early years when he wiped idolatry out of the nation? Would he, would he tear his clothes and plead with God like he did when the Assyrians were surrounding Jerusalem? Would he weep bitterly as he, as he pleaded with God as he did, as he did when he was facing his own mortality? Like, what would you expect a king as remarkable as Hezekiah to do in this moment? I mean, come on, any good king, any good father would be compelled in this moment to fight, to pray, to sacrifice, to defend, to do whatever was necessary in order to make this wrong right. Hezekiah looks at the prophet Isaiah in verse 19, and he says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? In other words, what do I care? At least there will be peace in my day. King, are you serious? I mean, what about your people? What about, what about your sons? What about all that you've been charged to lead, to provide for, to protect? They're all gonna suffer, and they're gonna suffer horribly. Your own sons are gonna become slaves, and the best you got is what do I care? At least I'll live in peace during my time. And right there, we have the last words of Judah's greatest king. That despite his amazing deeds, in the end, he failed the future generations who so desperately needed him. And listen, the same is true of you today. That regardless of your age, future, des future generations desperately need you. The reality is, is that we are engaged in a multi-generational war for the glory of God. And unless Jesus comes back in this generation, our kids, our sons, our daughters, our grandkids will live on to carry on the fight at, way after we're gone that Hezekiah's stunning end stands as a plea to every generation and particularly to the oldest generation to not forget the generation who comes after you. Look, in your life, you may, it may be all well with you in your day. Perhaps you would, you would look out on your life and you would feel that many of your most prominent victories of your life now stand behind you, that your lot has fallen in a pleasant place and you are totally content. You are totally satisfied to sit back and to let the younger generation figure it out. Please hear me. If you are of the older generation, do not take off your uniforms. Do not put them away. That you may have the scars and the stories to prove your valor, but your ribbons and your medals will not defend you or the generations to come after you. The enemy that has hunted you every day of your life is still alive hunting you today and hunting the generations who come after you. The church needs the older generations. 
They need men and women, strong men and women to stand, to be present, to be praying, to be pastoral, to lead toward Jesus. Do not fall to the selfishness of Hezekiah. Do not let the last word of Hezekiah be the last word of your life, despite a well-lived life, faithful to God in every way, that at the end you failed the future generations who so desperately needed you. In huge contrast to the life of Hezekiah, we have Paul's command to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter one, he writes these words, but by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is wartime language. And Paul is telling Timothy here that you are to guard this good deposit that is the gospel that has been entrusted to you. And part of your guarding, he begins to expand in chapter two when he says this, you then, child, next verse, Michelle, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, part of the, part of the guarding Part of the guarding of the gospel is that Timothy is to teach those who have come behind him, to train them, to invest in them, to enlist them as guardians so that one day they can pass on the very deposit that's been entrusted them to other people. That Paul is telling Timothy that you are in a multi-generational war for the glory of God. And an essential part, an essential part of faithful living as someone who who is a faithful follower of Jesus is an investment in the next generation. Like you can't think of this as an optional add-on. That an essential part of faithfulness that Hezekiah missed, and dare I say that so many of the faith today miss, an essential part of the living, of faithful living is an investment in the coming generation so that as much as we can influence that the younger generations run the race, they finish the race to the point that their savior looks upon them and says, well done, good and faithful servants. That your role is to take what you have been given in this world, particularly when it comes to your faith, and you are to guard that in such a way that you give it to others to train them, to teach them, so that they can move in the deposit that's in them and give it to others. And Paul says that when this happens to us, when we invest in relationships like this in our life that God has given to us, that we will experience satisfaction and contentment and peace, that it will be well with our souls. It'll be well with our souls. See, and in doing so, you will see that God has actually designed you to live forever on this world, not just in heaven, like we like to talk about as Christians, but that we live on in this world as our lives ripple through the generations that come after us. And what's so cool about this is that when it comes to this truth in the Bible, the science of our world is just starting to figure out how true this really is. In 1938, Harvard started a massive study that spanned 75 years. It ended in 2013. And as part of this study, they took in 700 men from various backgrounds, and they began to study them over the course of their lifetime. And there was one finding that stood among all of the others. 
that the one finding that stood above all the others is the importance of not just peer-to-peer -peer relationship, just not the importance of relationship to your partner, but the importance of, of caring for and investing in and developing the next generation. That what they found is that these 700 men, of those who were in the middle age and beyond, who invested in, cared for, developed the next generation, were three times more likely to experience happiness in their life than those who did not. After 75 years, the Harvard researchers concluded with what the Apostle Paul has been saying for 2,000 years, that we're wired to connect with those younger than we are that God designed it that way. And that we're to help create a better future. The old were put on this earth to nurture the young. It is good for us in every single way. On this Mother's Day of 2023, let me sp very specifically and practically encourage those in the room who are moms. For decades, decades, evolutionary anthropologists have tried to understand why women live so long. See, when it comes to the natural order of things, organism, organisms that um, live past, uh, organisms don't live past their usefulness. That is to say, when they stop reproducing, they soon pass, they soon die. And so the perplexing question is why do women live so long past their childbearing years? Men, they live, you know, a long time and they're able to reproduce for most of their lives, but postmenopause women, like, like from a strictly very narrow evolutionary standpoint, postmenopausal women seem in nature, quote unquote, unneeded. That was until researchers at the University of Utah found, the overwhelm found that overwhelmingly grandmothers are the caring person that keeps the family tied together. That it's grandmas who bring together the generations. The matriarch of the family was the missing link that science overlooked for decades to our well-being as a species. If you're a mom today, I want you to know that God honors you. If you have your Bible, you can mark 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Where did you get that sincere faith from? A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Mothers and grandmothers receive great honor in the scriptures. That God has given you a calling in your life that, can, that can become a long remembered ground of faith, not just for your children, but for all the people that your children are affected by in their lives. And that's in addition to the hundreds of thousands of other ripples that you have in this world as you live your, as you live your, your life and your faith. Moms, you have a place of great honor when it comes to bringing the generations together. So here's where I wanna close with us today. Regardless of what generation you're in, every week we're closing with a question for you to ponder about, for a question for you to think about, to make it applicable for you to come home with. And here's the question today that I want you to ask yourself. Who are you investing in? Who are you investing in? Like, who is that person that comes to mind right now? If you don't have a name 
that's popping into your minds. I want to encourage you to pray this week that God would bring someone into your life that you can begin to invest in. Because an essential part of faithful living for Jesus is an investment in the next generation. This isn't an opt-in. This is something that we are commanded to do, that we are to pass on what we have in this world to the next generation, to bring about flourishing, specifically spiritual flourishing in this world. Who is it that you're investing in? See, regardless of your age, regardless of your generation, you have been given a calling by God to invest in the next generation. That you are to guard the faith of Jesus who showed up on this earth so that we would see and know who God is, who died on the cross so that we would be forgiven of our sins, who rose three days later, later giving us the opportunity at life so that whoever believes would live forever with him, be in his presence one day. That we are to live in such a life way, the calling on our lives is that we are to live in such a way that as we walk through this world that we're investing in the younger generations so that they can take the good deposit that was given to us and pass it on to others in this world. Don't be Hezekiah. Don't rest on the remarkable life that you have lived and then in the end find out that you failed the next generation who so desperately needed you. Step into your calling and fight for those who are younger than you. If you've never trusted Jesus, we wanna make that opportunity available to you. You can use the text line again, 720-513-1933. And if you have questions about this, this savior, this gospel, this good news that resonates so deeply in us, that provides everything, the reason for everything that we do, we would love to have that conversation with you. You can just text the name of Jesus and we'll get with you. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, we come to you. And Lord, first I pray, maybe with just a heart of repentance, for how often we collectively, as a society, as a culture, maybe even as a church, have looked at the last years of life and given up the fight, allowed the younger generations to to figure it out. God, I pray that you would reach down and that you would, that you would forgive us and that we would realize that as long as we have breath, that you have purpose for us. That as long as we have breath, that we are to, we are to be investing in the next generations to come, passing on our faith to those behind us, fighting, instructing, teaching those to live in such a way that they bring flourishing into this world. God, I pray that we would not be like Hezekiah in his last days, but rather we would take on the commands of Paul to Timothy. Those would be serious in our lives and we would see that investing in the next generation, regardless of our age, that an investment in the next generation is not an option or an add-on. It's an essential part of who you call us to be. God, we thank you for the words that you have in your scripture. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.
Amen. Today we come together celebrating communion, realizing that when Jesus went to the cross, it was not just for his generation. It wasn't just for his disciples. It it wasn't just for the the people who lived in Jesus' time. But it was a fight for every generation that would come thereafter. That by his body being broken, he covered our sins. And so today, some 2,000 years later, we can eat and celebrate knowing that the death of Christ was even for us today. And so we partake as a family. And when it comes to the blood, Jesus spilled his blood on the cross as a reminder to every generation that would come after that our sins can be forgiven, that by his blood we are covered and so today we drink. If you need prayer, over the next 20 minutes or so, we would love to pray for you online. You can click the button in house. You can make your way over to the banner. I'm gonna invite you to stand as we sing today this beautiful song called The Blessing. Amanda.